0: Welcome once again to the Perimeter Church podcast. Should the church look like you or your community? The gospel doesn't care about your heritage, and to the extent that the church fails to model this reality, it distorts the truth. Teaching team member Jeff Norris continues the series, Greater Love, with this message entitled, Guarding the Dignity of Our Brothers and Sisters, which covers Galatians chapter 2, verses 9-14. to 14. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Let me, um, let me pray for us before we jump in this, this morning. Father, thank you for Cam's uh, for story. Thank you for all of our stories and the, uh, the grace and the mercy and the love that is so evident as we reflect on what you've done in our lives and Father, we thank you for the opportunity yet again to gather as your people uh, this Sabbath day. And Lord, would you bless this time, God, I, um, I ask that you would soften our hearts to receive what you would have us hear this morning, anything that comes from my mouth that is not from you, I pray that it would be forgotten quickly, but what is from you, may it sink deeply into our hearts. May we see our need for you, Jesus. Would you teach us through your word? We love you. We thank you. We give this time to you all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been with us, you know that not only uh, does it apparently rain every Sunday, but we've also been in this series called Greater Love, and uh, the last... Six weeks in particular, this week being the seventh week, we focused on two uh, uh, major topics. One is um, loving the poor. What does it look like to love the poor? Those were the first three weeks of of these two sub-series. And then the last three weeks we've been talking about what does it look like to love people from from every cultural background, ethnic background. Another way to say it would be, what does it look like to love people from every race? And um, uh, this morning, I I have the pleasure of wrapping this this little sub-series, if you will, that we've called One Family Up, and to talk about what does it look like to protect or to guard the dignity of our brothers and sisters. And to do that, let me open with a story that for me was pretty significant, and it happened fairly recently. Back in October, I had gone back to my hometown in North Alabama, a small town that I grew up in, for my 20th, uh, I almost said wedding anniversary, <laughs> high school reunion. And uh, I couldn't believe it had been 20 years. I feel like I just graduated from high school not that long ago, but 20 years went by like that. And here I am uh, with a bunch of people, many of whom I had not seen since high school. And it was great, it was good to, to hang out with these folks. And that Friday night, the first night of the of the reunion, uh, hanging out with some old friends, and one guy in particular, a guy named Ron, I had not seen since high school. And Ron is an African-American that uh, I remember fondly, and we were catching up, and kind of just like old times, we were teammates in a lot of sports together. We spent a lot of time in school together, a lot of the same classes, and and uh, we respected each other. At least I thought that I had shown him a lot of respect. And as we're talking, he he kind of Uh, jovially not not in a condemning way but with a smile on his face he just uh, out of the blue catches me off guard he says uh, he says Jeff we were buddies in in high school right and I said yeah of course and he said why didn't uh why didn't you ever have me over to your house and I sat there kind of like I'm sitting here right now I'm not sure exactly what to say and I I was stunned I backpedaled a little bit and I think I tried to defend myself a little and in the midst of me trying to find words, he, he graciously winked at me and he said, uh, it's because I'm black, isn't it? And I said, okay, we're, so we're going to do this right now. This, we're gonna, this is where we're going. And, and, but it was, he, he wasn't condemning in it, but, but my heart dropped. My heart absolutely dropped and I wanted to cry. And I finally found the words and the words were simply this, Ron, I'm so sorry. I should have had you over to my house many, many, many times. So that was Friday night, the next day, obviously the second day of the reunion Saturday and my parents still live in the same house that I grew up in, the same house that I never invited Ron to. And uh, my parents happened to be away that day and uh, on a trip. And so I had the house to myself and so I invited Ron over. He and a couple of other guys came over and we watched football the, the whole afternoon and hung out and it was a great time. And the whole time we were together, I thought, man, this is good. About 20 years too late, but this is good. And you may hear this and you say, Jeff, man, take it easy on yourself. Like this was, this high school, we all make mistakes in high school. We're so immature and, and maybe, yeah, there's some of that. But, but I tell you, it did something in me. It began to bring to the surface of my own heart a pattern that had been there most of my life that I had never recognized, and I'll call it this. It was a deficiency of displayed dignity. Deficiency of displayed dignity. Dignity in in showing honor and respect and value to those who aren't like me, that don't look like me, that maybe come from a different culture than I come from. And just to show you that this wasn't a one-time thing, literally just yesterday morning, I'm texting with another buddy that I had gone to high school with, another African-American friend that we were great buddies, even closer friends than Ryan and I were in high school. We've stayed in touch over the years. And, and I'm just texting him just to simply say, hey, I'm, I'm preaching on a on a sensitive topic this weekend. Would you pray for me? And he's a dear friend who has taught me so much in this arena as it pertains to redemptive unity and race relations and what does it look like for the church to engage in these conversations. And he teaches at a university up in Tennessee and does a phenomenal job of engaging students over this topic and is a dear brother in Christ. And we text back and forth a little bit and then, then I get this text from him and I want to read it to you. He says, Jeff, I was praying and thinking this morning about the nature of race in my own life and the process God has walked me through to see it through his lens As I was thinking about it, I felt I needed to share something with you. And the only reason I am sharing this is because we are brothers in Christ, reconciled to one another through his blood. I think this is a testimony to the power of Christ. And then he gets into why he wanted to text. He says this. He says, one of the first times I felt rejected due to race was when I wasn't invited to your birthday party in middle school. I remember feeling powerless and thinking, no matter how well-like you are or who your friends are, there will always be a barrier you can't change, and that barrier is you are black. Jeff, as you know, God has brought us so far in this journey and has brought us so much freedom and continues to do so in our lives. I love you, brother, and I just felt like I should share this with you. And I cried. I don't even remember the birthday party, but he does. I'm thinking I had a birthday party in middle school. I thought once you get to middle school, you don't do that anymore. But apparently I had one and it wounded my brother. I responded to him, I just said, his name is Jeff as well. I said, Jeff, first and foremost, I ask that you would please forgive me for doing that to you, my brother. It grieves my heart to know that I wounded you and sinned against you in that way. Thank you so much for sharing this with me and for being honest and vulnerable with me. I love you and I'm thankful for the opportunity to repent to you and to the Lord. He is gracious to kindly and faithfully teach me and to sanctify me. I've learned so much about sin patterns in my heart that I was blind to, yet I know that there will continue to be so much more that I will learn and need to repent of. I'm grateful for God's faithfulness to make us more like Jesus. There was a pattern in my life, and still is probably in ways that I don't see, that I pray, God, would you continue to open my eyes? of this issue of a deficiency of displayed dignity, this, this, uh, this lacking of showing dignity and protecting the dignity of my brothers and sisters. Listen, listen to the word, what the, just the simple meaning of what dignity is. Dignity is the state or quality of being worthy of honor or respect. And here's, here's the deal. Here's what was happening with Ron and Jeff is that in my words and in my interactions with them at school and these these common gatherings, football, basketball, different things, and what they were hearing me say was that you're my friend. But then what was displayed through my actions was, but not like my white friends. My posture to them was this, come close, but stay there. And the posture to my white friends unknowingly was, you've got full access to me. And it grieves my heart that that has been there in the wiring of who I am. Listen, the issue of displaying dignity and protecting and guarding the dignity of others is at the very heart of the gospel. That's what we're going to talk about today. This isn't isn't a cultural issue. This isn't a, a political issue. It's not even just a biblical issue. It's a gospel issue. It's at the very core of our faith. To walk in step with the truth of the gospel is to protect and guard the dignity of others. It's one of the outworkings of the gospel. And listen, we don't, I want to make it clear, we don't give dignity to others. We don't have that power. We affirm the dignity that's already there that's been given by God. As people that have been made in the image of God. So it's not, what I'm not saying is that let's give dignity to, to those around us. It's let's affirm it. Let's recognize it. And then let's guard it. Let's protect it. In the past couple weeks, is um, a couple weeks ago when Randy was leading us, he mentioned a, a number of times, he talked about um, how Crawford Luritz had come. Crawford, who is the longtime uh, pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, he came back in September and he spoke to our officers. And he's mentioned this a few times, but many of you have come to us and have said, I've heard Randy mention this talk that Crawford gave to our officers, but what did he say exactly? I'd love to hear a recap of, of what were kind of his main points. Let me, I want to give that to you now, of what Crawford shared with us, because it leads us straight into where we want to go scripturally this morning. And really most of what, or all of what Crawford shared with us flowed out of this, this one kind of summation big idea statement that he made and it's there in your bulletin he said this he said the body of Christ should be the model of where the culture should be the body of Christ should be the model of where the culture should be this is this is what God has designed the church to be far too often though what we see as we reflect on the history of the church is that we have allowed the culture to do more shaping of us then the church is actually moving into the culture redemptively and bringing a reconciliation and renewal and actually setting the tone for the culture around us at large. And Crawford's making clear, this is what the body of Christ should be setting the tone in. And then he gives these four, what he called mandates and pillars on this topic. This is the first one. He He said, we must reflect our reality. He made a really interesting statement that I thought was so significant. He said, there is not a church in the New Testament that was not multi-ethnic, not one. He said, this has to be a heart belief. We have to see and understand that this is not just something that we go, okay, this is probably a good thing, but this is what we see modeled for us in Scripture. We must reflect that reality. Secondly, he said, we must embrace our identity. We are a people who our identity is in Jesus, and we've been reconciled to God, and we've been reconciled to each other. And so what does it look like to live as reconciled people in in light of our identity in Christ? Third, he said we must live in community. Perhaps the the statement that that I love the most that Crawford shared with us, although there were many, he, he said we do not love from a distance. We love in community. We, you hear us say this often, it's all about relationships. As we move into relationships with one another, we love intimately. We love close at hand. And when we do that, begin, we begin to understand things about each other across cultural norms and lines and barriers that have been there that we no longer look at from a distance and go, man, why would, why would that person do that? But now being close to them, we say, now nah, I understand so we don't love from a distance. We live in love and community. And then lastly, he said we must defend each other's dignity. And that's where I want us to go this morning. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, if not, it's printed in your bulletin. It'll also be available for you on the screen. Galatians chapter 2. I'll begin reading in verse 9, which you'll notice is picking up mid-sentence. And let me just give you a quick little context. This is this is where if you were to read all of chapter 2 leading up, the first eight verses leading up to these verses that I'm about to read, you'll, you'll hear Paul, the Apostle Paul, is talking about how he went to Jerusalem and, and was being, ultimately what's happening here is he's being affirmed by the, the three most prominent disciples, the, the inner three, the ones that were closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And they're affirming that Paul is in fact a, a, an Apostle. That he was called by Jesus himself to be a missionary to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. So that's what's happened so far. And so Paul, picking up in verse nine, he says, "And when James and Peter, Cephas, there is Peter. Cephas is the uh, is the name that uh, that Jesus had given uh, Peter, that means rock." Okay, so that's whenever you see Cephas, then I'll say Peter, that's the same person. It says, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. That's the Jews. So Peter, James, and John will be the missionaries to the Jews. Paul and Barnas, Barnabas will be the missionaries to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. Now listen, this is interesting. Verse 10 If you were reading this straight through, starting from chapter 2, verse 1, verse 10 would seem a little bit out of place. It's just been this narrative about how they're affirming Paul as an apostle, and then all of a sudden, it just says, and only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. I was going to start reading in verse 11, because verse 11 through 14 is really the, the focus of of this sermon, but I, I thought I've got to include verse ten because it fits so perfectly with this this combination of loving the poor and loving people of every race. That at the very heart of Christianity is this desire that the apostles had to not forget the poor, the very thing that Paul and Barnabas and Peter James and John were eager to do. So there's this. There's this focus on the poor, but then look what happens next in verses 11 through 14. This is Paul continuing to, tell, to talk here. He says, But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, fearing the Jews. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically, along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So there's a lot that's going on in these few short verses. As I've mentioned, you've got Paul, this missionary to the Gentiles, who didn't walk with Jesus, meaning he wasn't with Jesus during Jesus' time on earth. The resurrected Christ appeared to Paul when he was on his way to kill and and oppress and persecute more Christians. The resurrected Jesus appeared to Paul and called him to himself, opened his eyes to see him, and then called him to be a missionary to the Gentiles. But then you have these pillars of the church the ones who were closest to Jesus, and Peter himself, who was called the rock, the one who was the leader, the alpha male of the disciples. And here's Paul in front of all these people in Antioch calling out Peter. The boldness of Paul here is significant because what he notices that Peter is doing is not just, hey, this is, this is not cool, but it's at the very heart of the gospel. Now, there's a couple of things that I want to make sure are clear. One is there's two major implications that are, that are going on in this text. The first one is theological in nature. Paul is, I'm sorry, Peter is bringing confusion to the Gentiles from a theological or a salvation standpoint. Because what he's communicating to them is through his actions is he's saying, uh, you need to take upon the Jewish behavior to fully be accepted by God. Because here's what's happening. The Jews are, they have all these rituals, they they have all these customs and these traditions, these holidays, these dietary restrictions, and then of of most importance, they have circumcision, the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament. And, And they are believing, all of these Jews that are a part of this church in the Galatia region, they they're believing in Jesus, but it's this mixture of believing in the finished work of Christ, but not really because you still have to do all these Jewish things to really be accepted by God. And so Peter, Peter knows that's not true. Peter knows and understands the gospel of grace. And when the Jews are not around, he's fellowshipping with the Gentiles and he's, he's in no way suggesting to them by his behavior that there's other things that you need to do to be accepted by God. He's, he's fully accepting them. And it says in the text that that he would dine with them. He would eat with the Gentiles. And this is an indication that it's not just a meal that they're having together, that there's probably some type of worship gathering where they're eating together that's culminating in the table, just like we will today. And so he's having full fellowship with these Gentile believers. But then when the Jews show up, he pulls back. And through his actions, he says something very different. When these people are around, uh, uh, you kind of need to act more like us. So there's a theological aspect to it that, that he's confusing what is the nature of salvation. Is it just Jesus and him alone or is it Jesus plus something else, all these rituals? But don't miss this because often we miss this. It's not just that that's at play here. It's certainly that. But it's also something very racial that's going on here. And Paul recognizes it. I, there, there is no way that I or Randy or Caleb or Bob, I don't think we could ever articulate to you guys how much the Jews hated the Gentiles. I don't, I don't think there's anything in, in our current culture that would, that would show and be a mirror of the hatred that existed here. Listen to this quote from William Barclay just to give us a taste of what was going on here. The Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that He had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews, the barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out immediately. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. Peter probably felt, and this is me reading into it, we don't know, but I I would think probably that Peter probably felt he he was doing pretty good. As a Jew, as Peter as a Jew, he was probably thinking, look, when the, for me to just be with Gentiles and, and, and not require anything of them other than faith in Jesus, like that's a big step for me. But to, but to then pull back when the Jews are around, I mean, this is understandable. I don't want to be judged by them. And Paul says, I don't care. What you're doing is not just not cool. It's, it's at the very heart of the gospel. Because the gospel tells us that there was absolutely nothing about us. Nothing in our morality, nothing in our religious behavior, and nothing in our culture or racial identification that won us favor with God. Listen to Tim Keller. He says this. He says, Paul's basic line to Peter in this passage is this. God did not have fellowship with you on the basis of your race and culture, Though you were good and devout, your race and customs had nothing to do with it. Therefore, how can you have fellowship on the basis of race and culture? That's ultimately what Paul's getting at here with Peter. How can you have fellowship with these people based on race and culture? And you're bringing great confusion to the matter because of the stipulations that your behavior is indicating. Ultimately, what the Gentiles were seeing with Peter was this. You're accepted, but if you would just act a little more Jewish, you'd be really accepted. You think we do that today, majority culture? You have a place here, but if you would just act a little more white, you would really have a place here. It's safe here. But if you'll just take on white culture a little bit more, it'll, you'll be really safe here. When we do this, when the majority culture, whether it be white or whatever, when, when the majority culture presses upon those who are not a part of the majority culture, this isn't just something that's not cool. It's at the very heart of the gospel. Because this is in no way how Jesus approaches, did approach, and does approach us He didn't come to us saying, if you would just be a little bit more blank. He just said, I come to you, period, because I love you with a love that is inexplicable, that is unequivocal, that is immeasurable, that is indiscriminate. It is a love that you cannot imagine, and it has no pretenses. None. And friends, the church We are to love the same way. This is Jesus' call on our life, to love like I have loved. And when we don't do that, when we don't love that way and when we live with this deficiency of displayed dignity in our lives, then we're not just doing something that we shouldn't be doing. We're actually offending the very gospel of Jesus. It's the gospel that fuels us in this redemptive unity endeavor. This is the language we use here at this church, redemptive unity. How can we be moving towards God redeeming us in such a way that unity exists here in a way that the world looks at and marvels at? And the world longs for unity. They long for it. All you have to do is watch five minutes of the Oscars last week. The world is clamoring for unity. Please give us unity, but they're looking for it in all the wrong places. And we know as the church that we have the answer. That the answer for unity is not found in all these different programs or legislations or this or that, it is found in Jesus. And the unity, the redemptive unity that's displayed in us becomes a beacon to the world around us. It says, You long for unity? Watch the church. See what happens here as we go out from here, as we love like Jesus loves. Benjamin Watson, many of you guys, Georgia fans particularly, you know who he is. Follow him on Instagram, and he had a great quote this week he had posted. He he basically was saying that the gospel is the very thing that fuels us in this endeavor. He says when we speak about the uh, the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, he says this, this truth the truth of the gospel motivates me to stand for impartiality, to speak for the voiceless, and to seek to enact justice in systems devoid of it. It is this truth, the gospel truth, that simultaneously destroys the myth of superiority and inescapable bondage of inferiority. And it is this truth that supernaturally turns bitterness into betterment, guilt into grace, and enmity into loving embrace. So two two quick key questions that I just, I just want to ask us to ask myself. Paul makes it clear this this isn't just a biblical issue. We see the big picture of the biblical narrative, but it's it's at the very core of, of the faith. It's a gospel issue. And if we're gonna walk in step with the truth of the gospel, then we have to ask ourselves the question: will we guard and protect and affirm the dignity of those who aren't like us. And I'm not just talking about to the white people here. I'm talking about of every race, of every background. Will we look across cultural and ethnic lines and will we affirm the dignity of those who aren't like us. Just, uh, just Friday night, two nights ago, uh, I'm at home and my, my mother and father-in-law had just gotten back to our house with our son, they had taken him to dinner and brought him back home and we're just sitting there catching up for a few minutes and Martha, my mother-in-law, says to Dexter, my father-in-law, she says, Dexter, tell, tell Jeff the story that happened today. He got real excited to tell me and he said, uh, he said, you won't believe what I witnessed today at the tire shop. So I'm intrigued, I said, man, tell me. He says, I'm there and I'm pricing out some different things and there's a middle-aged white woman that is there also trying to look into buying tires. And As she starts realizing how expensive the tires are, she becomes more and more flustered and upset. And then she gets on her phone and she calls presumably her husband and begins to cry saying, I'm just not sure how we're going to afford this. We've got to have these tires, but they're this much, they're this much, they're this much, whatever. And Dexter said that, A young African-American man was sitting in a chair waiting and he watched this man get up and pull his wallet out and pull out a $100 bill and walk up to the counter and hand it to the man behind the counter. He said, sir, would you please take care of this woman? And the woman melted, just began crying. And Dexter was so struck by this because he thought this is, This is what we need to see more of. And what that that African-American young man could have done is really what he was doing when when he handed that $100 bills. He could have very easily walked back over to that woman and he said, you have dignity. You matter. I love you. It was powerful. Dexter said he just stuck his hand out because he didn't know what to say because he was emotional. He just stuck his hand out and gave him a fist bump and he said, good job, brother. Will we protect the dignity of those around us? Will we show value? Will we love people the way that Jesus loves us? And it, that we would love people and even take it a step further, that we, would just, we wouldn't only show it and display dignity outwardly, but then we would begin to tell them about this Jesus too, that this love that you see me displaying to you, it's not for me. It's a greater love from Jesus. Let me tell you about it. The second question is this. First one, will we we guard and protect the dignity of others? But the second question, will we tolerate racism? That key word there is tolerate. If I were to talk to every single one of you, I'm I'm absolutely convinced that there would probably be none of us, myself included, who would self-profess to be racist. Our issue is not so much sins of commission, of commission, of things that we've done outwardly. It's more of our issue that we need to repent of, that I need to repent of, is sins of omission. What have we not done? How have we not stood in the gap for the dignity of those who have been oppressed? When have I not stood in the gap and taken up arms for those who aren't like me? When have I been like Barnabas in the story. Did you notice Barnabas? Barnabas is great. We'll be in heaven with Barnabas one day. But Barnabas saw the activity of Peter and he turned a blind eye to the point to where he, mo- he was moved with the Jews to be hypocritical with them. So what, do we see Peter-like activity and do we respond like Barnabas? Or do we see Peter-like activity and respond like Paul? We say, no. This is not in step with the truth of the gospel. Will we look and see and recognize that, that there indeed didn't just used to be, but even still are today, system and structures, systems and structures of injustice and oppression that, that we need to enter into and learn about? Or will we just say, ah, uh, it's not that big a deal. If we are people who are going to walk in step with the truth of the gospel, we can't tolerate what, what, what for far too long the church has, has tolerated. And listen, here's the reality. God is restoring, and he is redeeming, and he is moving, and he will accomplish his work. But listen, it is messy, and we will make many, many, many mistakes. And the grace of God is real to cover our mistakes and to continue to empower us as we seek to be the church that he's called us to be. What about next steps? All right guys, we're gonna preach on this for four weeks and then what? I've gotten this question many times in the last couple of weeks. We're gonna preach on this and then what? What Where do we go from here? Let me be honest with you. We're not exactly sure. Unlike perimeter fashion, we didn't lay out the 20 steps of what's coming next in our strategic plan. We simply said, we think God is calling us to preach about this, to speak about what he says in his word. But I can promise you this, as long as the gospel is leading the conversation, this will not be something that we just check off the list and say, okay, we addressed that and never come back to. We've put a redemptive unity team together that consists of about 10 people that are on our staff from all different backgrounds and cultures. And this team is absolutely committed. They're already working overtime, committed to what are next steps that we can provide for our church. There's a landing page on our website that already has a ton of questions that are provided for you. Of Here's great questions to ask cross-culturally to begin the conversation with those who are in your life. We want to start offering different seminars and different ways that you can learn and grow and understand more about what this looks like to be a church of redemptive unity. So we wanna promise you that we are committed to being a church in this endeavor. To not just preach about it, but to equip our people to move forward. Let me give you this quote as we wrap up here. I think this is a great quote to sum up our last seven weeks as we think about love for the poor and love of every race. It's a great quote from uh, William Hendrickson. It says this, if Christianity is genuine, it is concerned about the poor, their health and their housing, their spiritual, but also their material welfare. It does all in its power to help the underprivileged, undereducated and undernourished, the migrants and those who belong to minority groups. Overwhelmed by the love of God. This is my favorite part. Overwhelmed by the love of God in Christ. It The church is eager to do so. That's it. That's it. Overwhelmed in ourselves. We ourselves are overwhelmed by the gospel, the love of God in Christ. And when we are overwhelmed, we are eager to move out in this way. Uh, Brian, last week, if you haven't listened to his sermon, if you missed last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to what he shared with us. But he shared this verse many times, and I want to end with this and give you a quick thought. John 13, 35, he says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. And then Jesus gives this, this little phrase, if you have love for one another. I want you to think about what Jesus is saying here. He's He's given permission to the world to judge us on one thing. By this, all people will know if you're my disciples. And it's one thing by how you love one another. Francis Schaeffer, the great theologian, he went so far as to say that we can actually, the, the world has the right to actually question if Jesus is who he says he is by how the church loves one another. This is the core issue, this greater love issue. How will we love? Will we love like Jesus? And I think we will. I think we are. And I think we will continue to grow in loving like him. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your grace to teach us, to equip us, to train us in righteousness through your word. Father, we thank you that um, that we know that we will not we will not get this right in in the sense that we'll make lots of mistakes. We know that um, That as we seek to grow in this way as a church, as we want to reflect our reality, as we want to live in community, as we want to to walk in step with our identity, and as we want to protect and guard the dignity of our brothers and sisters, Lord, we we will be largely imperfect in doing that. But we thank you that you are perfect and that you empower us and that you will do your work in and through your church for your glory. God, thank you. We give you praise. And we thank you, too, that we have the opportunity to come here to your table. As we take now, as we dine on you, Jesus, would you nourish our hearts? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia.